welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm in Plenary Session, End of Days Bunker. I'm joined via Skype by Dr. John Towns. He's the head of infectious disease at OHSU, and he's in charge of the COVID response here. You won't want to miss this discussion about what's going on right now with COVID-19. Stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm here joined via Zoom by Dr. John Towns, uh, who is the Division Chief of Infectious Disease here and a professor of medicine here at OHSU and in charge of our COVID-19 response. Um, And I look forward to getting his expert opinions on a variety of questions that people have about COVID-19. So, Dr. Towns, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So I understand it's a busy time for you. Is that fair to say? Yes, as a matter of fact. one meeting after another. <laughs> One meeting after another. And and right now, it's probably fair to say that, uh, so that we should sort of give you the date because it's March 16th. You know, everything's changing on sort of a minute-by-minute basis. And so um, listeners will probably be able to appreciate March 16th in Oregon. We've just had, to my knowledge, just, you know, maybe two or three cases reported of COVID-19 documented, um, at least here on the Hill at OHSU or the VA. Is that fair to say where we are right now? Right. Yeah, we've had a few cases, a couple of cases transferred in and uh, one or two cases diagnosed here. I see. And uh, but you have sort of always been ready because part of your your job includes um, pandemic preparedness or infection preparedness. And so this isn't the first time you've sort of been called up uh, to get things ready, get the get the troops ready. Right. You know, there's always uh, a preparedness plan that it's not just in infection control, but for the whole hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, There's an emergency preparedness committee that uh, prepares for natural disasters as well as pandemics. Um, We've had issues with pandemic problems before, like uh, with 2009 uh, pandemic flu and uh, with Ebola virus. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I would say this this situation is much different in the, uh, the scale and in terms of the public health response and the the effect on general economy and people's lives in general. It's much more extensive than anything I've seen in the past. Mm-hmm. And in part, I guess that's because this is so, sort of um, almost the worst possible pathogen. Is that fair to say, this uh, beta coronavirus that we're dealing with that causes the syndrome? No. Of no, I wouldn't say it's the worst possible pathogen at all. Mm-hmm. I think 
in terms of uh, virulence, it's probably much less virulent than, say, Ebola virus sure. or SARS virus or sure. uh, MERS virus. Um, the the difficulty here is that it it seems to not be virulent enough, so that people are still well while walking around and have a communicable illness while they're still up and around, uh, and so that makes it uh, more transmissible. Yeah. That, so yeah. In terms of virulence, it's not uh, it's not what MERS is. It's not what uh, SARS was. Um, but uh, in terms of transmissibility, it's much worse. Yeah, I guess I—I I mean, that's sort of what I was trying to get it by saying it's the worst possible because because it is uh, it has such a spectrum, and by not being virulent, by having uh, the ability to be transmissible prior to symptoms, uh, it might have capacity for far greater spread. My understanding with SARS is that um, patients were often symptomatic for five days before they were able to be, you know, uh, spread it to other people, which is an opportunity to intervene. But in this case, uh, many people may be relatively asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic, which kind of in terms of the number of people potentially uh, at risk, far greater um, vulnerability. Right. So in terms of uh, transmissibility, mm -hmm. Um, this virus is probably not as transmissible as something like measles mm -hmm. um, or uh, varicella, uh, which are transmitted by airborne route. So uh, the virus will hang in the air for several hours unless there's very good circulation in the air in small particle aerosols. Mm -hmm. Whereas this virus is primarily transmitted by droplets. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, uh, require more close contact. So um, not as transmissible as measles, but more transmissible than, than say, SARS virus. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, I think what I'm trying to say is that it, it requires some persistent long-term close contact for transmission to occur, or from a, a standpoint of you're not going to, catch it by walking past someone. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, unless you were to get secretions directly on you in your face. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that makes it difficult is that it survives in the environment pretty mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And so, and it's carried in fecal material <clears throat> as well. So if people are not washing their hands after they touch their nose or, or go to the bathroom, they can leave virus in the environment that if you pick that virus up and put it in your mouth or in your eye, that's how you would transmit it. So uh, in terms of preventing transmission, it's really important to, you know, use good hand hygiene and environmental cleaning. So you sort of on the extreme ends of transmissibility, you put measles. That's something that, you know, one person infects on average, what, 16 people or something. And this virus right. is two to three. That's right. I see. Um, and and yeah. the R value, I think, is what you're referring to, the R naught value. That mm -hmm. is the the number, the average number of people infected by a, a single person uh, in the absence of any control measures or the absence of any immunity. That R value kind of depends a little bit on how compact the population is. Mm. So the number of contacts depends on the number of contacts how long the person is transmissible um, and, and things like that. So if you have people that are packed together on a cruise ship, the R value could be much higher. I see. Because the frequency of contacts is much higher. I see. 
air being pumped from cabin to cabin and the frequency of contacts, the close quarters all can increase. Right, right. So that's why this whole idea of uh, social distancing has taken hold because Mm -hmm. the idea is if we if we reduce the number of contacts that people have with each other and we reduce the probability of uh, transmission during each one of those contacts, then we can reduce the R value. That -hmm. means we can, instead of one person giving it to two people and those two people giving it, making four and four, eight, 16, that kind of exponential growth, Mm -hmm. if you can have it so one person only gives it to 1.5 people or maybe uh, one person gives it to one person and one and one, then the peak uh, is leveled out and you have a much slower diffusion of the virus into the into the population Mm -hmm. so the the main thrust of this idea of social distancing is to lower that r value so that we can not have an overwhelming tidal wave of people coming in to healthcare sick with this virus Mm -hmm. the problem is that about 15 percent of people maybe 10 10 to 15 percent of people are sick enough that they need to seek health care I see. And about 5% of people are sick enough to need critical care. So if we have a very large number of people who are sick all at once, uh, then we'll overwhelm our ICU capacity. When you say critical care, um, in that group of people who need critical care, you know, how many people do they just need oxygen? How many people not non-invasive pressure ventilation? How many people actually need to be intubated in that group? Um, I don't know the answer to that question off the top of my head. Uh, there, there are a number of good publications out of China that can, where you can find the exact answers to mm-hmm. those questions. But uh, I would say probably uh, uh, somewhere in the nature of uh, one to two percent of people might need to be intubated. I see. And then, but it it, yeah. it depends. You know, it, it. I think the severity of illness and the mortality rate also has <clears throat> something to do with the intensity of transmission. We saw in China that early on in the outbreak when there was real intense transmission and uh, very high density of infections, uh, the mortality rate was higher than it is uh, now in China. Mm -hmm. And um, initial estimates of mortality coming out of other countries where transmission was much less intense, the mortality rate seemed to be less. And what so do you attribute that to? Know. Yeah, is that is that attributable? I don't know. To, yeah. uh, I think there may be multiple reasons. Uh, one is that uh, just uh, if you have lots of people cooped up together and there's lots of transmission, mm-hmm. uh, maybe uh, uh, people are getting a higher inoculum mm-hmm. uh, of virus. Mm-hmm. Um, the other might be just that the healthcare system capacity to cope with those people is uh, uh, diminished mm-hmm. when there's so many people all at once. And so uh, the resources are strapped and so the mortality increases because you just can't handle handle all those people. Mm-hmm. I think that those are the, the two possibilities. Um, what, and, and that might also explain why healthcare workers, even who seem to be sort of without comorbidities and at younger age, uh, there's some at least anecdotal reports of sort of young healthcare workers being sort of more profoundly affected than you might expect for somebody in their 20s, for instance, or 30s, for instance, or 40s, for instance. Yeah, it may be that uh, early on, uh, before anybody knew what coronavirus was, their infection control practices maybe were not as good as they are 
So they got exposed now. to a heavy <laughs> viral load, yeah. Right, yeah, maybe they were intubating people without wearing an N95 mask, getting or doing aerosol-generating procedures uh, without taking proper precautions and getting a big load so what, of virus. What are the kind of precautions that we are currently taking for healthcare workers? What, what is advised for suspected patients, uh, you know, present with a cough, uh, patients who are undergoing procedures? Uh, what are the different um, sort of standards we're using right now? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, there's something called standard precautions, mm -hmm. uh, which should mean, so a lot of people think standard precautions means you don't have to do anything. Like, okay, this person, I think they have heart failure, so I can use standard <clears throat> precautions, which means I don't have to do anything. <laughs> but that's a real misinterpretation of the concept of standard precautions. Because before you really know what's going on with a person, before you have a definitive diagnosis, you don't really know what may be coming out of their mouth or other end. So standard precautions means if a person is coughing and they may cough on you or in your face, you should put on a face mask mm -hmm. and not get somebody coughing in your eye or a mask or a gown if you're going to be uh, having extensive contact with a person who mm -hmm. has diarrhea, for example, or who hasn't had a bath. Uh, then you need to put on again. That's standard precautions. So that's the baseline that everybody should be doing mm -hmm. um, when they're caring for patients. Um, and if we if we simply followed standard precautions appropriately, we'd have many many fewer uh, real exposures. So somebody who has a cough, before you know the history, you know you don't really know what's the cause of that cough. So mm -hmm. you should put on a, a mask um, if you are able to get a history that the person has tuberculosis, for example, or something that is transmitted by an airborne route, you put on a, a an N95 mask or PAPR um, before you, you see them for the first time. But the guidance for coronavirus is uh, a little bit difficult because while we know that the virus is probably transmitted primarily by large respiratory droplets, uh, the CDC, in an abundance of caution, is mm -hmm. the idea recommended using an N95 mask. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that is that uh, that recommendation makes it very difficult for healthcare providers to care for patients in the outpatient clinic. Uh, it makes it difficult to collect specimens. Um, it makes it difficult to, you know, for testing. Um, and in the shortage of N95 masks, it, it creates a, a system where you've got two tiers of, you know, if you've got N95 masks, you're okay. And if you don't, you're not okay. It, it actually is okay to use a surgical mask as long as you're using a face shield or goggles or eye protection. I see. Um, unless you are doing a procedure that is going to generate aerosol. Uh, SARS-CoV-2, it's called, can be found in aerosols if they are generated. So if you're gonna be intubating a patient, for example, or a patient is on a high frequency ventilation, there is a list of things that are aerosol generating procedures. If you're gonna be doing one of those things, you really need to be wearing an N95 mask or PAPR. Mm, and then a gown uh, and gloves. In the SARS epidemic, uh, there was a study that looked at use of N95 masks versus regular masks and and there was no difference in rate of nosocomial transmission i see uh and probably what's going on 
is that the main risk for infecting yourself comes in when you take off the PPE. I see. Yeah. When you doff inappropriately and contaminate yourself uh, when you're taking off the mask or taking off. So uh, <laughs> I made this sort of analogy is if you have a really good raincoat, you can have the best raincoat in the world, but if you don't zip it up, you're going to get wet. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's not the best analogy, but the idea is that you, your risk of infection depends on uh, how careful you are in removing the PPE and using appropriate cleansing of your hands, not touching your face, not showering virus when you pull off the PPE. Don't mm -hmm. snap the gloves and aerosolize virus like that. I see. There is a process for how you take off your gloves and gown to minimize how much you spread the virus around. And you're thinking that's even more more important than the the need for N95 mask per se. That's right, except unless you're, you know, Doing right in the face of somebody who's generating aerosol. Now, one question I've had is that, you know, we, we're getting up in testing, and I saw this morning something like 80 people have been tested or something like that, um, suspected for possible possibly having this. But um, in the last few weeks, maybe three weeks ago— 80 pe I'm sorry, 80 people where? At, at our institution. I, uh, I, I had talked to some people who say that, you know, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, they were seeing people who presented with, you know, flu-like illnesses, and they were ruled out for flu. Is it possible that three weeks, four weeks ago when, you know, this testing wasn't online, that there were cases out there that we just didn't capture or we missed? I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure there were cases like that. The The problem has been that um, there have not been a generally available test. Yeah. Um, and ideally, those people would have been told, and hopefully they were, we don't know whether you have <clears throat> COVID-19 or not. You don't have influenza, but you've got an unknown virus. Make mm -hmm. sure you go home and don't have contact with anyone. Right. Uh, at least until you're you're no longer having symptoms. Um, we we focus a lot on tests as a a way to control our behavior, but I think we need to get away from that. There's awful lot of focus on on testing, but the truth of the matter is that you know, anybody could have, could be carrying virus. Uh, and that's why we're pushing all these social distancing things. One um, question about the social distancing is, you know, currently, I think all of the measures that at least nationally, at least in our community are sort of um, like suggested measures. Um, although I hear now in the Bay Area, there are some compulsory measures. But one question about sort of these suggested measures is what role does, you know, inevitably there'll be somebody cheating. And I just saw some pictures of like video of Florida beaches right now that are like packed with people. What role do cheaters play that, you know, is, is it so important that social distancing requires, you know, 100% compliance or, or can a few cheaters kind of spoil the efforts of many people? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I don't think anybody really knows. Um, this is unprecedented, this kind of public health intervention that we're doing. And whether it's all necessary or not, I don't know. Hmm. Um, I worry that, uh, that we may flatten the curve with this, but then have significant negative side effects that uh, outweigh the benefit. Oh, such as? You know, crashing the economy hmm. and 
limiting people's access to things, you know, I can't think of uh, a good example right now, but mm-hmm. uh, let's say you have uh, a person who has depression and diabetes mm-hmm. and you decide to cancel their appointment. Mm-hmm. So their blood sugar goes out of control mm-hmm. uh, because you're not seeing them regularly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they go into DKA and yeah, acute exactly. renal failure and die of renal failure. That's mm-hmm. nothing to do with, or uh, we have such disruption of our supply chain uh, that we can't get medications that we need, you know. So there could be substantial downside mm-hmm. um, if, if large numbers of people are suddenly out of work for a prolonged period of time. Mm-hmm. What effect is that going to have? Mm-hmm. So I I kind of wish that there was a, a more focused way to have an intervention on mm-hmm. a public health way, such as doing more selective testing around individual cases yeah. and clusters yeah. uh, and control of outbreaks and clusters yeah. and, and doing it that way and then having more of a voluntary kind of social distancing. I see. Um, but, you know, that's not really my area. That's kind of a up to public health Expert, for, yeah. for them to decide I see. Um, how they're going to do it. Um, but I do worry yeah. about the negative effects of that in the long run. And I think that that's good to to talk about because, of course, you know, there are uh, uh, policies like this have broad repercussions and it's, you know, uh, it's easy to sort of to say you think somebody needs, to, we need to do X or be very aggressive without thinking about all of the sort of negative consequences of those actions. Um, yeah, it, I mean, it's ne- yeah. never been done before in my lifetime or, or my parents' lifetime or, right. or, or their parents' lifetime. Never been done before in this country that I know of uh, this kind of thing. So it's really unprecedented and... Uh, whether it works or not is going to be, we'll see. It's uncertain, yeah. What about uh, in terms of a hospital being ready, um, how ready can we be and what can we do to be ready? What are the sorts of things that you think about on your daily basis in these meetings you attend? Well, um, you know, the big decision over this past weekend is uh, uh, canceling elective procedures. Yeah. That's another example of of the negative, potential negative consequences, you, you know, you've say something is an elective procedure, but maybe later it's not as so elective. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, And so the idea there is to cancel surgical procedures that aren't absolutely necessary Mm -hmm. so that that will free up hospital beds because, you know, the average length of stay, I don't know exactly what what it is. If we have the hospital full of people who've just had surgical procedures and or complications of their surgical procedures, then we won't have beds for uh, housing patients who come in with this virus infection. Yeah. So So this uh, is our last the, week the of other, elective procedures, and then it gets canceled on Friday, I understand. Right, yeah. right. And, and I think trying to do it in an orderly way is, is wise. For, for a person who, who believes that they are coming down with something, they start to feel unwell, um, what do you advise them to do? Uh, do when, when should they go to see the doctor? Uh, should they go right away to try to get an outpatient appointment? Should they call the doctor? You know, what, what are the strategies you think for when somebody should seek medical care versus trying to just get yeah. convalesce at home? Yeah, really good question. In an ideal world, we would have uh, the capacity to do uh, rapid testing for a variety of different viruses and yeah. tell them exactly what virus they have and exactly how to uh, prevent it from spreading it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't really an ideal world. Right now, there's shortages of not just the 
capacity to test in laboratories, but shortages of the uh, trans viral transport media and the swabs that we use to collect the specimens. I see. So um, uh, we have very limited supply of those things. And hopefully we're going to get more very soon, but this week we don't have very many. I see. Uh, and so it's not really, you know, people in Washington are saying, you know, anybody can get a test. Well, yeah, but we don't have 325 million uh, swabs or vials of transport media. Right. So we, we, not everybody can get tested. Um, so who needs to be tested? Well, how do you prioritize who gets tested? Yeah. And, and that's been a subject of a lot of debate. And um, my own feeling is that we should prioritize those people who either work or live in a place where they may spread virus to somebody else. I see. So um, the person who lives in a uh, nursing home, for example, we should prioritize the testing for that person or the person who works in a hospital and has symptoms. Mm -hmm. We'd like to, to prioritize testing so that we can manage, do the infection control and public health management of that case. Mm -hmm. For the average person who gets sick with uh, upper respiratory infection, a cold or uh, sore throat or something, you know, the test is really not going to be available right now. I see. Uh, not around here anyway. Yeah. Uh, hopefully later this week we'll have more. Uh, early next week we'll have more capacity. But right now, right today, uh, it's going to be pretty difficult for the average person with a mild respiratory illness to get tested unless there's a compelling reason. So that person needs to do like what we're all doing is try to keep your distance from people. But if you're, if you're coughing... You should isolate yourself from others. I see. Stay at least six feet away. Um, don't share utensils. Don't share plates and toothbrushes and towels. And mm -hmm. um, you know, keep your house clean. Uh, and if you are really sick, you know, uh, if you're really getting short of breath or uh, having chest pain or you know severe symptoms of you know, feeling like you're going to faint or very high fever, that kind of thing, you need to get to the hospital. Mm -hmm. Ideally, you call before you come. I see. Call your doctor and tell them, I'm feeling this, I'm feeling sick, so that you don't just show up to the clinic or to the emergency room coughing all over everybody in the waiting room. Mm -hmm. uh, call ahead and they'll give you some instructions about you know, putting on a mask. If you have a mask, put it on. Uh, if you don't, ask for one when you arrive and so that you're not spreading it to other people. Ideally, when you arrive at the doctor's office or the emergency room and you have a cough illness or something like this, this virus, you would be put in a sequestered area right away. What are your thoughts about um, the, the different way in which this virus has manifested by, by age? It's an unusual virus that my understanding is people under the age of 18 often nearly asymptomatic, very mild symptoms. No one seems to be seriously ill at that age group. Um, and then as you climb up in the deciles of age by 80, you know, maybe one in five people, it's almost a fatal condition. Uh, has this been seen before for these kinds of viruses or is this a little unusual? Well, I mean, it's true of, um, it has been true of influenza. Mm -hmm. We know that children are the primary drivers of influenza epidemic because children have less symptoms than older adults. And it, it's, 
you know, very similar in that way to influenza in that the young children are not affected. The difference, I guess, is that even very young children have not had much in the way. There haven't been infant deaths as well, like you do with influenza can right. cause deaths among the very, very young. Yeah. But um, I'm not sure why it is uh, that it's primarily older people. The virus binds to the ACE2 receptor. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's some speculation, I guess, that maybe it has to do with the number or the confirmation or something <clears throat> of the ACE2 receptor that, that makes there a higher affinity for for virus. Um, you know, people with hypertension are at greater risk. Uh, and some people are speculating it may be because of increased number of uh, ACE2 receptors in the lung. I see. But I don't think any, I don't think anything is really uh, definitively worked out on why that is the case. Some of the pathophysiology or the uh, uh, some of the pathology may come from the immune response and an aberrant immune response to the virus, mm-hmm. and maybe that immune response is not present in uh, young, children. young people yet. Yeah, yeah, I don't think we fully know. What are your thoughts on the many different um, drugs that are being attempted in this condition from? the Gilead drug remdesivir to, you know, tocilizumab for severely ill patients to Kaletra to, you know, I've heard so many things, hydroxychloroquine, so many different drugs yeah. are thought to be um, potentially beneficial, being attempted all over the place. Uh, how do you think about that as infectious disease doctor? Who are you going to consider for those or, you know, what are you going to... Yeah, right. Um some uh, folks in our group have put together a protocol for who should get... Um, hydroxychloroquine. Chloroquine is the drug that has been shown to maybe possibly might have some benefit, uh, but it's not obtainable or very expensive at this point. Hydroxychloroquine um, uh, is currently available. And then I think there's a number of clinical trials looking at it and because of the very, but it's still limited supply. And because of the limited supply, we have reserved it uh, primarily for uh, severely ill people. And mm-hmm. we do have a sort of a treatment protocol developed in the ID division. Uh, and uh, hydroxychloroquine for coronavirus requires an ID uh, approval off. for I see. that. I see. Yeah. So it's it's within the uh, a- antibiotic stewardship program. I see. Um, remdesivir, I think uh, we've been able to get that one time. Mm. Um, uh, but the patient did not qualify after we actually got it because he had developed renal failure. Oh, wow. Um, And so that is in very, very short supply. Currently, uh, all of the clinical trials are uh, full and we we can't get anybody in a uh, clinical trial for that. There is compassionate use though. I see. Um, And so to get remdesivir, remdesivir is the drug that was used in the first U.S. case that Mm -hmm. was published in the New England Journal. And uh, seemed to have, you know, is whether it was the effect of that or just time. Right. It's hard to know. Hard but to know. Uh, the patient did improve after getting remdesivir. Mm-hmm. There's uh, the data on um, Kalitra seems to be pretty poor. I, I don't think it really changed uh, outcomes very much. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so that doesn't seem like a very good option. And I think the other things that are out there are all theoretical and there's really nothing proven yet. Yeah, and I think, uh, I guess, uh, for all the enthusiasm, you wouldn't be surprised if these trials were negative and you wouldn't be surprised if they were positive either. I mean, really don't know. 
really don't know. Really don't know. Uh, I, I, I'm very hopeful that remdesivir comes off as positive. But, you know, the, the, um, the good news is that, you know, they, they, the biology, the basic virology is very well worked out. I mean, mm-hmm. they know the structure of the receptor. And, you know, I think people should be able to develop drugs pretty quickly, I would hope. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not in that business, so I, don't, I can't really comment on, <laughs> on how, how easy or hard it's going to be. But I'm very hopeful that since they know so much about it already, it's really amazing. And in, in, in three months, yeah, you know, it's a three-month-old disease. Three-month-old disease, you already know virtually everything about the receptor, how it looks, and uh, you know, sequence of the virus, and they've developed a test and distributed a test worldwide. And I mean, people are impatient. We're in that that sort of uh, internet world where you can get answers immediately, and people want things right now. Right, but if you think about it, it's pretty amazing that how how much testing has actually gotten out there. It would be nice if we could have developed uh, and a distributed tests as fast as they did in, in China and South Korea. Korea yeah. uh, but uh, it's coming. It's it. coming. In, in terms of what to expect, I guess two weeks from now, you know, there, there's a huge range of possible things that we could be facing. We could be sort of inundated with cases. I guess that's what some estimates would, would peg it. Um, on the other hand, it might come in sort of less than what we fear. Um, do you have sort of a, in your own mind sort of a, a range of possibilities that you think about? Or, you know, what are you preparing for? What, what does a range look like to you? Yeah, I think my answer to that question seems to change every day. <laughs> yeah. Uh, initially, um, I was hopeful that the uh, the public health response would would drastically limit secondary transmission, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I think the cat's out of the bag on that. Uh, we don't really know what the prevalence is right now, and so it's very hard to predict what's going to happen. Um, I think you can probably learn. We're learning more from places like Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany, and and they're a few weeks uh, ahead of us. Uh, so you know what happens there may happen here, but I don't know. Hmm. Uh, I I what I hope is that uh, we will have uh, a limited number of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, you would hate to though see uh, the world's economy destroyed over <laughs> a limited number of cases, <laughs> a, 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 a whimper of an outbreak, mm-hmm. but. Um, I guess you don't hope for both of those things happening. Right. So uh, I, I'm hoping for the best, preparing for the worst. I see. And in terms of the worst case scenario, if we do sort of reach those sort of limits to medical capacity, uh, perhaps ventilators or those sorts of rationing decisions, or even workforce capacity if our ICU doctors become depleted, what are the sorts of, I mean, I guess one question I have is, who makes those decisions in our hospital? You know, where do those kinds of decisions get made? Um, and uh, the next question is, like, what are the kinds of thinking on those topics? Well, um, you know, we have an emergency operations center mm-hmm. uh, that is staffed by leaders from each uh, area of the university and hospital. Uh, and, um, for example, uh, questions about... Uh, you know, who would get a ventilator and that kind of thing would be 
represented to the emergency operations center by people from the ICU together with ethics professionals mm-hmm. and, uh, and, a, and a group of people, a working group who are working on that particular issue. They would then bring that to the emergency operations center for decision and ultimately through uh, hospital leadership I see. to make decisions on those things. I see. So um, that seems like uh, this is a good sort of overview of sort of all of the things that you've been thinking about. Is there anything that, you know, that's been on your mind lately on this topic that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Uh, I think we touched on it, um, but I, th- I think the thing that's in the minds of everybody is testing. Yeah. Um, everybody wants testing, but you have to keep in mind uh, about testing that the value of a test depends on the sensitivity of the test. Yeah the specificity of the test and the pretest probability or the prevalence of the condition. Yeah. So if the prevalence of the condition is very low, which we think it is at least right now relative to the size of the population, right. you know, if we have even if we have a thousand cases, there's, you know, 5 million people in Oregon something like that now. Yeah. So the 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 actual probability of having a positive test for any individual is pretty low. And unless your test is like 98% sensitive or, you know, the, the negative predictive value will not be very great. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, to say, you know, I'm getting into a discussion of sensitivity and specificity and I may be uh, going to get confused because I always have to have a chalkboard in front of me when I do this <laughs> yeah, discussion. But, but I see your but point. Basically, to say, to the say you're just fine, if you have a, yeah. If you have a, a, a test that is not 100% specific, yeah. Uh, and a low pretest probability. If you have a positive test, it may be a false positive yeah. test. Right. Uh, and if you have a negative test, it may be a false negative test. If the spe- sensitivity isn't high enough, so the test is not some magical thing. Yeah. Plus, there's no therapy. If you have a positive test, Correct. there's no specific therapy. Correct. So, what good does it do you yeah. to know that you have a positive test? The primary good that the testing does is that it helps with infection control management in yes. the hospital yeah. or in a nursing home. Uh, and so now everybody will say, well, I need to know if I'm going to give it to my coworkers. Yeah, well, true, but the probability of transmission and the consequences of transmission are much higher probably on average in a nursing home or in the hospital. And right. when you're resource limited, uh, you can't not everybody can get a test. And even if you get a test, if it's negative, it could be positive day after tomorrow. Right. And in terms of our process, so, after a person is swabbed and it's placed in the viral media, where is the testing actually done? Is it done on site or is it sent out? <clears throat> That's a good question. Um, OHSU is developing uh, the capacity to do the test here, and hopefully we'll have that uh, up and running next week, we'll mm-hmm. hope. Kaiser is hopefully going to come online with their test next week as well. Um, Providence is working on a test, but they're limited by reagent supply. They don't have uh, reagent supply. Uh, currently, the large commercial labs uh, like LabCorp mm-hmm. and ARUP and Quest uh, have test kits available um, and can, can run the tests in their lab and the public health department. So Oregon State Public Health Laboratory will run a test. Uh, but they have limited capacity as well. So, but with the rate limiting step now is not the lab doing the test, but the transport media. I see. 
I see. Yeah. Well, that's important to know. And then I guess my last question for you is, in the cases that we have had, my understanding is that with um, sequencing efforts that are being done in different parts, people have been able to sort of at least figure out that there are different um, mutations that occur in the virus and that there's different um, types of the virus, slight alterations of the virus, um, and maybe gives them a clue into you know when it was introduced into the state or the population. Um, have any of those efforts been done with sort of the patients we've had or, or not to date? No, I don't. I'm not aware of any uh, molecular epidemiology studies being done here. I see. Um, we know that RNA viruses are prone to mutation mm-hmm. uh, and accumulate mutations over time. So you can uh, sort of trace the evolution of the virus in a community uh, and the relatedness of one virus to another uh, from one person to another based on the uh, mutation rate. But I, we have not done that here. I see. Not that I know of. There may be somebody working on that, but <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> well, Dr. Towns, um, yeah, thank you for your time. I know our time is limited today. And I guess um, I'll be curious to know, um, you know, where we are in two weeks. I think there's so much uncertainty. And uh, and I wish you the best yeah. in your preparations. And hopefully we don't uh, face the worst case scenarios. Thank you very much. And stay well. Yeah, you too. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.